Scripture reading today is from 2 Corinthians 4, 14 through 18. We know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus Christ, will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit, and as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will be lost forever, will last forever. This is the word of the Lord. God Almighty, you are the great I am. We stand in need of your mercy. We are reminded this morning of how precious our faith is and how worthy you are of our worship. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive from you all that you desire to teach us, to reveal to us, to give us this day. We are blessed by the fellowship. We are blessed by the worship. May we be blessed by the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the last three Sundays, uh, Dr. Barnett has been uh, preaching a sermon series on From Grumbling to Grace. And I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, in fact, I, I don't want to end it. I, I want to continue it through this, this Sunday. Uh, the first week, he talked about the workers in the vineyard. And, and how some were hired early and then throughout the day and some at the 11th hour, yet all were, were paid equally. He talked about Zacchaeus. We all know the story of, of Zacchaeus and the scandalous kind of grace that Christ showed him and the salvation that came to Zacchaeus on that day. He was a changed man. Last Sunday, Dr. Burnett talked about the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And I want to circle back around and and talk more in this sermon about the vineyard workers and about Zacchaeus. But we're in the middle of a quick turn from Thanksgiving to Advent. I've been taking a lot of heat here in the office because I was ready for Christmas music about a week or two ago. And apparently that's taboo. There are some people here that just really felt very strongly that you have to wait until Thanksgiving or the day after. Uh, It was on the radio. I found it. So I've been playing it. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not apologetic um, for that. It is part of my Thanksgiving uh, to sing all those great uh, Christmas songs. Well, in this quick turn from, Advent, uh, from Thanksgiving to Advent, a question I want to pose this morning is, how much grumbling will we do in this season? It's a busy season. It's an incredibly, incredibly busy season. It's a great season, but it's so full that I, that I worry that it might be sometimes more conducive to the grumbling than experiencing Uh, the grace. How much complaining will we do versus uh, how much contentment will we have uh, in this season? I want to begin this morning with a very confessional illustration. Over the last several weeks, I have really been struggling, especially in the awareness that we're leading up to Thanksgiving, uh, in my ability to drive uh, I, I don't mean that my car has been having a hard time starting or anything like that. It, it, the, the vehicle is running okay, but I have been having uh, a, quite a struggle in the vehicle. 
I am really having a hard time uh, in my criticizing of drivers around me. Uh, People run red lights in Birmingham like they're a suggestion and and not a law. It's unbelievable. Uh, Our morning routine Monday through Friday at the Dempsey household is that we leave the house, Anna Carson and Rylan and I, about 725. It takes us about 30 minutes to go from our home to drop her off at West Elementary and then drop Rylan off at Pazitz and then I can be on my way. So I've become keenly aware that during those 30 minutes, my younger son Rylan has been subjected day after day after day, to my just complete frustration, boiling over. I can't stop myself from just being outraged at the way people drive, and I'm not wrong. Um, I mean, I am correct in the way that they drive. It is unquestionably horrible. Um, I don't know how they got a driver's license in the first place. I'm I'm tempted to kind of start a campaign that everybody should lose their license and we should all have to go back and test again. And if you don't stop at the stop sign or the red light, then you just Uber it or something. Uh, You don't deserve to drive. But seriously, the legitimacy of my complaint does not justify my bickering. And I I honestly, for weeks now, I have been feeling very convicted over this because before I even realize that I'm about to say it, I've said it. And I'm not talking about cursing or anything. I'm just talking about, what are you doing? I mean, didn't you see the red light? I mean, just before I could stop myself, I say those things. And then I look over at Riley and I just, I'm sorry because I know it's no fun to hear a grouchy old man, you know, fussing about all the morons that are around him. Thank you. I got an amen. All right. Does my verbal recounting of the evidence of their bad driving make one ounce of difference? Other than it must be incredibly annoying to those who have to listen to it. And so I have decided that I must stop. I must accept that people are going to drive in a way that I do not approve of. And I can either lose my mind over it every day for the rest of my life, or I can somehow come to peace with it. On a larger scale, this example has a similar dynamic in families. It's easy to fuss. It's easy to complain because... The people around us, whether they're at home or at work or even at church, they mess up. They do wrong things. They don't stop at the stoplight like they're supposed to. They they do things that we know could be done in a different way. And it's so easy to just automatically complain about that, to confront that which we don't like and don't approve. And I'm sure that people just get tired of hearing it. We can complain about all sorts of things, but this morning it it relates to our passage and to this sermon because the more complaining that we do, the more distracted that we are from God's grace flowing into our lives. And the more destructive it is to a spirit of thanksgiving. I cannot simultaneously have a spirit of thanksgiving and be outraged 
it doesn't work. I'm either venting my frustrations or I'm saying thank you, God, for your goodness. But I, I can't do both at the same time. And the fussing and bickering and all that is also, it detracts from our experience of God's supreme glory. This morning our passage is from 2 Corinthians 4. The text has been read. I really want to focus in on verse 15. Verse 15 of this passage and the the outline, the three points that are on your handout, if you could grab the outline, are really just the three parts of of this verse. And that's how I want to structure what I have to say this morning. The message puts it like this. There's more and more grace to more and more people, more and more thanksgiving, and more and more praise. More grace to more people, great thanksgiving, and more and more glory. Those are the three parts. It begins with the grace of God overflowing to us and through us, and it's multiplied among people. We respond to that with thanksgiving, with praise, with an acknowledgement of the great things that God has done from creation all the way up to right now. And God is increasingly glorified in this equation. By nature, God's grace expands. That's, that's what it does. It's like the kingdom of God. It moves from where it is and who it's affecting to larger concentric circles. And what Dr. Barnett has reminded us of in the last sermon series is that sometimes we don't like who all gets included in that expansion. We don't mind being caught up in it, but we can resent that others whom we might deem unworthy would also be included in God's expansive grace. The message says in this passage, not a day goes by without God's unfolding grace. The New King James Version phrases verse 15 like this, For all these things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. The grace of God is expansive. As we look back to one of the parables that Dr. Barnett discussed, the vineyard workers, I want to think about that story again. The landowner in that story keeps coming out looking for more workers. And we're told that that twice it says in the passage that he comes out and he's almost surprised that there are more laborers standing there waiting. In fact, he even asked them, why are you still here doing nothing? That's what the text, doing nothing, it says that twice. And they said, because we haven't been hired. There's no job for us to do. And so, of course, you know the story, he hires more and then goes back later and hires more and keeps going back and keeps hiring. Apparently, the, the story we normally read it is, is kind of wage-centered. At the end of the story, the people who were hired first are really upset, not about the kind of work, but about the fact that there was equal payment across the spectrum, regardless of how much time was put in. It's kind of interesting, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, just a little side note, but 
if they were to have had some joy in their productivity, then they might have been at peace with the fact that they had labored throughout the day. But apparently it didn't really matter to them that they had accomplished probably a tremendous amount by working from sunup to sundown, whereas others who had just gotten there, I mean, they could only have done so much. They might have been paid equally, but there's no way they did equal work. So they resented that instead of taking some joy and pride in their productivity. Here's the question I want us to, to think about for a moment. Who is left by the end of the day? We know the end of the story. These folks are going to work only an hour, but they're going to be compensated for a day's work. But why are they still available for hire at the end of the day? I've been thinking about that recently as uh, there's a gas station that's not too far from our home, uh, and I go by there uh, periodically, and always, any day of the week, any time of the day, they're over there right now, I'm certain of it, there are 15 or so Hispanic men who are out there in the parking lot waiting for work. And folks will come by in their work trucks, and they'll hire a few of them to come help. I don't know exactly what they're doing, maybe some kind of construction or lawn care or moving or some kind of general manual labor. And there's a mix of of men who are out there. Let's just say that I went by there at 6 a.m., that I was the first employer to come by to hire some men for the day. Let's say that of those 15 or 20 men, there are five men who speak English very well, and then the rest fall along a spectrum to, to several who can't speak but maybe a couple of words. That might be one criteria that I would be interested in as a non-Spanish-speaking person. How well am I going to be able to communicate with these laborers? Half the men are in their 20s or 30s. The other half are over 40, and there are one or two in their 60s or maybe even 70s. Let's just say one man has a deformed hand and another has a noticeable limp when he walks. If I pull up at 6 a.m. and I'm the first employer there and I have my pick of all these workers, if I were to say, I need five guys, I don't want any who can speak any English, I'll take the two that are over 60, I'll take the guy with the deformed hand, and I'll take the one with the noticeable limp. You can imagine how odd that would be. Because I imagine, though I haven't stopped and talked to these gentlemen yet, I would like to, that the strong, young, bilingual, more skilled guys get hired earlier in the day on a regular basis. That would make sense. The rest, if they get hired, go in succession for their desirability. By the end of the day, you probably have the least desirable workers left. Notice the chief complaint of the early all-day laborers. They grumble to the landowner, you have made them, those hired late in the day, the less desirable laborers, equal to us. That's their complaint. You have made them equal to us. Part of the scandal of God's grace is that it multiplies not just to more and more people, but to those in society whom we would say are less than us. The poor, the sick, the dying, the incarcerated, the immigrant, the misfit, the outcast, etc. Think with me for a moment about those workers who are hired first. The best skilled, perhaps the younger, the stronger, the most knowledgeable. They're probably accustomed to being hired first on a regular basis. They probably develop a reputation 
folks know, whoever's hiring them, that, hey, that guy's the best. If he's still there when you get there, definitely get him. It's not so different from when you were a kid and you, you were getting picked for teams, right? It was fairly predictable. I don't know why we just didn't go ahead and formalize the teams. Because the guy who got picked last was more or less always going to get picked last. He wasn't all of a sudden going to become a stud and become the MVP. And the folks who were kind of the first rounders, I mean, unless they had broken an arm or something, they weren't going to become the end of the pick. They had a reputation. You kind of knew who was the most desirable. Imagine if the landowner had skipped over those normally first-hired workers. What if he had let them sit there until the second round and then passed over them again until the third round and then passed over them and passed over them till the end of the day? I imagine that perhaps some of them, unaccustomed to not being picked, might have even just called it quits by lunch. Insulted by being passed over all day, I'm not sure they would have had enough humility to sit there and wait until the 11th hour where just a little bit of work can be done and normally just a little bit of payment is made. This story challenges the best, the favored, however we want to look at it. And if our feathers aren't ruffled by the inclusion of the least, Jesus throws this little dart out there in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. There's a hierarchical reversal, a new way that God is teaching us to live. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over quickly. Matthew chapter 22 is a different parable that Jesus tells. And he says that there's a king who's prepared a wedding banquet for his son, and he sent out his servants to invite uh, folks to the banquet. And several uh, begin to give excuses and are not able to, to come. And he says in Matthew 22, verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And then if you flip over to Luke chapter 14, we see the same story and Luke makes it clear here that the master, when he gets the word back that people are busy and they're not coming to the banquet, he says in Luke 14 verse 21, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled the blind, and the lame. And if we back up to verse 13, Jesus plainly says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. More and more grace to more and more people. Undeserving people. And it sometimes leads to grumbling from the insiders. The same hell for Zacchaeus, right? He had a reputation. When Jesus came up to him, uh, 
and made eye contact with this man perched in a tree. Kind of an embarrassing thing to climb up in a tree maybe because you're short in stature, but you want to catch a glimpse of this famous rabbi. What did Zacchaeus feel when Jesus looked up at him, called him by name, and says, come down? Not so that we can stone you, not so that I can condemn you, but I want to go to your house. I want to break bread with you. I want to get to know you, and I want you to get to know me. Well, of course, Zacchaeus, when confronted with this scandalous grace, could do nothing but give thanks. He overflowed with thanksgiving and praise, and all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, the grace of God was infinitely more valuable than the material things that Zacchaeus had worked so hard for. The grace was more valuable than the money that he had accumulated, that he had taken. The inclusive love of God was more powerful than all the judgment and the hatred that the townspeople felt for him. It turns out that the beautiful grace of God consumes all the oxygen in the room. It starves out the very last gasp of pride. So there's more and more grace to more and more people. We respond with with great thanksgiving and praise. And then there's this experience of the glory of God. In the equation, the first two are pretty clear cut. God gives the grace to us. I can't give grace to God. I don't stand in the position to give grace to God. But God gives grace to me. We give thanksgiving and praise to God. He doesn't give thanksgiving and praise to me. But because of His grace, I can give it to Him. But what about this glory thing? I can't give Him glory. I don't have any glory. I'm, I'm a wretch. I think that it's safe to say it seems that the people who become closer and closer to God become more and more aware of their brokenness and their need for God. And so we would say... I may be a mature Christian. I may have grown up in the church. I may know the scriptures fairly well, know the doctrine pretty well, be engaged in church life pretty well. I don't have glory to give God. And he certainly shouldn't give me glory. But yet he offers us the opportunity to share in his glory. And that circles back around to the grace, right? That we don't deserve by any means. But the grace comes down, the thanksgiving goes up, and we find ourselves with an experience of sharing in God's glory. But how do we get to that point? Only in a spirit of gratitude and humility may we share in God's glory. You can't be filled with pride and be sharing God's glory. Pride desires by its very nature to steal God's glory. We remember the story of the evil one, the the fallen angel. He desired the glory that was due to God alone. Evil always resents God's grace. It can never bring itself to give thanksgiving and therefore it cannot share in glory. Well, if this equation is true, Uh, of more and more grace and more and more thanksgiving and more and more glory. If it's true in 2 Corinthians 4.15, then it must be true 
elsewhere. That's the beauty of God's Word, that, that we take it as a whole, and we hold it in tension. And if there's a truth somewhere, it, it normally shows up in other places, in other ways. I found what I believe is a confirmation of this truth in the first psalm in which I looked for it, Psalm 100. It's a brief psalm, five verses. You're probably familiar with it. But I want to read that psalm to you, and I want you to listen for the grace in the beginning. And I want you to listen for the thanksgiving. And I want you to listen for the forever glory of God. Psalm 100. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Go into His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and His faithfulness continues to each generation. Now allow me the liberty to change the order of those verses. I don't think it harms the intended meaning. I'd like to read verse 3 first, then verses 1, 2, and 4, and then verse 5. Listen for the grace. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Listen for the thanksgiving. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And now listen for the forever glory. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. The message phrases verse 5 like this. God is sheer beauty. All generous in love, loyal always and ever. This is for our advantage and for God's glory. More and more grace. More and more people. More and more praise. Not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. May we set our sights on God's grace, abounding to the least deserving May we invite more and more people into the family, the party, the banquet. May our voices of thanksgiving and hearts of gratitude meet with spirit of contentment and a mind of peace. And may that be a sweet refrain in God's ear. May God be glorified greatly in this community of believers, in all our hopes and dreams, and in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks. This is a season where we pause to reflect, to count our blessings, to look back over a prior year as we near the end of of 2017 and think about all that has gone on this year. And Lord, in the good and in the bad, If we look for it, we find your grace. 
in that which we would have hoped for and anticipated and also in that which we would have feared and resisted, we still find your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the gifts of life and health. God, we know that life is fragile. Your word says it over and over that our lives are like a flower. We spring up and we quickly fade away. So, Lord, even if we live to be a hundred, it will seem like those hundred years go by quickly. So we are thankful for the gift of life today. Perhaps this year we have lost a loved one and we pause to say thank you for that life and what it meant to us. Lord, we are thankful for your provision. And as we have witnessed your grace abound to us, we have also seen it abound to and through others. And we are thankful for those who were baptized this year at Brookwood and those who made a profession of faith and those who joined our church. So, so much to be thankful for. Lord, may you be glorified greatly in this Advent season as we begin to anticipate the coming of Christ. God, we pray that our hearts would be in in such a posture, Lord, that we would not be complaining and grumbling, but that we would celebrate. That we would find something to thank you for. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us deeper into your love, deeper into that grace, God, that we do not deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.